holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal, have mercy on us. Holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal, have mercy on us. Holy God, holy mighty, holy immortal, have mercy on us. O Christ, the true wisdom of God, as we've prayed every week, Teach us. Teach us the path of prudence. Teach us your way that we may walk in your truth and open your scriptures to us tonight. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Well, good evening again. Ephe- uh, nope, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ephesians one day. That'd be great because I love that book. But Ecclesiastes, oh my goodness, can I tell you guys how much fun it's been to study this book? Um, especially this week was a fun one. This is one of those where I could easily go for three hours, so it's, you're welcome that it will be far less than that. Um, however, um, I found in this journey of Ecclesiastes, w- w- remember I shared with you when we opened last week, that when we were going through Proverbs, I was like, yeah, Proverbs, oh, Ecclesiastes is coming, I don't want to do that book. Um, but now that we've been in it, and I've been digging into it, and... and I'm realizing that Ecclesiastes is actually affirming things that I have known deep down as truth, but never heard someone say it like our professor says it here in the book of Ecclesiastes. So um, some of these are challenging. To be honest, the professor of Ecclesiastes is challenging because he rubs against our common view of the world, but he's telling it to us like it is. And that's why we're now in the university with Professor Vanity, and it's challenging. So, today, um, perhaps you've heard this, it's very popular in our culture to discuss with one another the five-year plan. You guys ever talked about that? You have one? You've heard someone ask about your five-year plan? Anyone? I I, I run into it a lot. People ask me, what is your five-year plan? And at first, the question caught me totally off guard the first time I was asked. I was like, I, I don't, I mean, follow Jesus. I don't know. And, um, and while, look, I don't, th- what I'm about to say is not at all to bash when we have five-year plans. Maybe that's a good idea. But it's to show us something that this mentality tells us about our culture. I always struggled with the question of the five-year plan. <laughs> because I was like, I don't, I don't know how to answer that. But then uh, it took me about five years, and then I think I finally found my answer to the five-year plan. So in retrospect, I guess my five-year plan was finding an answer to my five-year plan, <laughs> and now there's a new one. Um, but here, here's what it is for me. A five-year plan is that I don't have one. I instead, I have a 50-year plan. And actually, J.I. Packer had said that Christians should be establishing 50-year plans because my 50-year plan is union with Christ. Or to put it another way, it's, uh, it's participating in the divine life. It's, it's my sanctification. It's oneness with Christ. It's looking like Christ. It's growing up and taking seriously what the Bible says, my calling to be a son of God, a brother of Christ. 
That is what my 50-year plan is. And, and Lord knows it's at least a 50-year plan. That's what it will take to get this wretched, rotten flesh and my desires and the vices which cling so tightly to me to unleash and unhook their jaws and their fangs for me to get closer in that union with Christ. That's, that's my 50-year plan. You can borrow it if you want. Paul had a similar one. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, he used a different word. It's a beautiful word. It's just hard for us to use in common terminology because we never say this word outside of church. He says this, This is the will of God, your sanctification. How perfect and simple is that? What is the will of God? I don't know. Should I do this or that? I don't know. What's my five-year plan? Do I need to go this way or that way? I don't know. Paul says, this is the will of God. It's your sanctification. And sanctification is the process of becoming more like God. It's union with Christ. And this, again, is at least a 50-year plan. So, look, five-year plans are not wrong. We should have some structure and goals in our lives. But... What we need to understand is, and what we need to be careful with, is what the five-year plan, this golden rule about culture shows us, is that culture perceives time as something that you can manage. Time is something that we can manage. But here's what the preacher says, and why I love him so much, because we have to be told this sometimes. He's basically going to tell us tonight, you can't manage time. Time doesn't belong to you. Time belongs to God. Only God manages time. And so he's going to give us a reality check about our relationship to time. We're moderns, we're Americans, of course. We think everything can be on demand, everything now, and the way we want it. And we're frustrated when it's not. So let's hear what he has to say to us in Ecclesiastes 3 through 4. Real brief, let's recap on what this book is about um, we had been, we're in the College of Christ. It's our series through the wisdom books. Proverbs was elementary school, and it was with Lady Wisdom. She was our tutor. She taught us the principles of wisdom. Kind of like this. I before E. That's how the world works. You do this, this happens. Wisdom will bring blessing. But then we get older, we graduate, and Professor Vanity comes into our life, and he says, ah, but have you considered all the myriads of exceptions to what you learned in grammar school? I before E, except after C, or when sounding like A as a neighbor and way. And then you grow up and you learn more words and you begin to realize I before E only applies about 60% of the words in that condition. There are a lot of exceptions. And so Ecclesiastes shows us that wisdom is a lot more complicated than Lady Wisdom first taught us. Not that she was wrong, we needed a starting point. But now we're seeing and having to confront the world as it is. Lady Wisdom showing us the world ideally, Ecclesiastes, the world as it is. In other words, he uses this word vanity, it's Hevel in Hebrew. Hevel of Hevel, all is Hevel. Vanities of vanities, all is vanity. And the Hebrew Hevel refers to the incomprehensibility of life, because life is brief and life is uncertain, and things happen that we can't explain and doesn't make sense. Like Abel being killed by his brother because he was a good boy who did what God wanted him to do and Cain was evil and Cain wins and Cain gets away with it. What kind of sense does that make? That's incomprehensible. Abel's life was righteous, but it was brief. And the confidence in God was uncertain because he died anyways. And did you know that Abel's name is, in Hebrew, Havel? 
It's a very word for vanity. So this is what the professor of Ecclesiastes will be teaching us. Um, So, in short, Ecclesiastes is not showing us the way life will be or the way life was. It's showing us the way life is. Life was in Eden. Life will be in a renewed Eden. But right now, we live east of Eden. We live outside Eden. And the professor, if he's incomprehensible to us, it's because we have not admitted the fact that we will die, that life is incomprehensible, and that we are outside of Eden. That's what he shows us. So, um, he turns our attention to time and our anxiety about time. You guys know your relationship with time? We never have enough. Then it's moving too fast. And then it's too slow and we're bored. We have this really terrible relationship with time. And ticking in every second, we understand it's marching us relentlessly toward death. So, chapters 3 and 4. He's going to introduce us first to the nature of time. Then he's going to explain the vanity of managing time. And it's going to come out of the nature of time. So, let's look at the nature of time. Chapter 3, verse 1 through 8. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, a time to die. A time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek, and a time to lose. A time to keep, and a time to cast away. A time to tear, and a time to sow. A time to keep silence, and a time to speak. A time to love, and a time to hate. A time for war, and a time for peace. In Eden, time served us. But outside of Eden, we serve time. We have conquered nations. We have conquered mountains. We have conquered gravity. We have managed and made progress on health, on hunger, and on science. But time? We've never conquered time, and we've never made progress on time. In fact, time again and again conquers us, as every tombstone reports. And time again and again, right now even, makes progress on us. It's time that marches life forward, not we. This is one of those things in creation that we will never manage, never make progress on, and never conquer. And that's what the author, our professor of Ecclesiastes, starts with saying is, look, for everything, time has seasons. Time is built in with these structures, and you cannot change it. If it's a time to, 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 to tear down, you can try. To, you can say, I would rather be building right now, but good luck. You can't change that because it's not time for it. Time marches forward, and the fool tries to go his own way. The wise man will say, let's roll with time. Not the times, please understand. Not roll with the times. 
but let time be time. Um, You see, in Eden, time was a gift to us. God gave us the six days, and the seventh day was this climax at the end of the sixth day. We got purpose in our work because we knew it was going toward the Sabbath, and the time was a gift. It was taking us to that celebration, that feast, that all of this mattered. But now, time is not a gift. Time is a grind. It's not only tedious at times, but time is literally grinding us back to the dust from which we came. And you'll see him say that actually in a couple verses. So we have anxiety about time. And what he tells us right away is that time is designated for seasons. It has its own rhythms. And you're not going to do anything about that. And that can make us anxious if we stop there. But the professor then tells us about God's sovereignty over time. I can have anxiety about time, but God's sovereignty over time should be able to put us in the right track. So verse 9, what gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. God made everything beautiful in its time. See, he has control over it. That's what verse 9 is also saying. What gain do we have from our toil? You can't manage time. You can't make time do what you want it to do. There's no gain in that. But God makes everything beautiful in its time. Also, God has put eternity into man's heart. Yet, he's done so, so that we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. There are echoes of Eden in our heart. We remember that there's this gift of time, but we can't figure it out, he's saying. We can't, we can't crack the code of time. We can't manage it. God knows it, but he's concealing some of that from us because we are not inside Eden. We are outside of Eden. Um, verse 12. I perceived that there is nothing better for them, that's us, to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So, rather than trying to bang our heads against the wall of time and crack it and manage it and own it and fix it and change it and master it, he's saying, accept time. Accept it as it is and enjoy it and life and the things God has given us as a gift. We talked a lot about that last week because that was his conclusion, his first conclusion. He's repeating it again. So verse 14, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Or in other words, I believe we're describing here the fact that only God can manage time because only God is outside time. Every aspect of creation is underneath the tyranny of time, but God is not. So he can tell it what to do. And that's what those verses are alluding to, it seems. So we have this anxiety about time, but God has his sovereignty over time, which leads to our professor's conclusion about the vanity of time management. So that's what the rest of this chapter and chapter 4 are about, the vanity of time management. So we're going to see that if we attempt 
to manage time, to manipulate it and to work it our way, we're going to have some negative results. The first is that you're going to see injustice in the world. Our attempts to manage time is vanity because it produces injustice. Look at verse 16. Moreover, I saw under the sun. Remember, I believe that that's his phrase for the the world outside of Eden. I saw under the sun, outside of Eden, that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge righteous, the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them. And that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. And man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. Can the animals control time? Do the animals outmarch or outrun its doom and its coming death for them? No. And neither do we. That's what he's saying. He's not saying that there's no dignity of the human. He's just saying, in regards to time, we have the same fate. They all have the same breath. In verse 20, all go to one place. That's death. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. A direct allusion to Genesis 3.19, right after we leave Eden, God says, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Now, I don't think the professor saying he has no clue. I think he's saying it doesn't matter at this point because all die. We can't manage time. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work for there, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So look, rejoice in your work, he says. Don't try to manipulate time or what's given to you and say, I'm going to manage this and take control of this because you could end up bringing severe injustice in the world. Injustice is always the overreach of people in power trying to conquer every last aspect of life. And he says, look, just receive your work, receive it in its seasons, receive it in its time, and rejoice in it. Because there's nothing we're going to do to change about that. Chapter 4, our attempts to manage time can produce oppression. Chapter 4, verse 1. Again, all, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, outside of Eden. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. And you might say, how depressing! Give us some hope, preacher! And the professor is simply like, I'm just being real with you. That if we actually take the time to consider time and its march toward death and its inevitability that is grinding us back to the dust from which we came and the way that dust is treating dust and the way that we are abusing people and oppressing people and the injustices of the world and the grossness, we would weep and mourn that life is a thing outside of Eden. 
He's not necessarily saying you're all better off dead, but he's being realistic in saying that the world has gone so awry from God's intention that sometimes not being alive looks preferable. And if we're honest, if we're honest, that is how bad the world is. And that's what he's trying to do. He's trying to show us the reality of life outside of Eden. Managing time can also produce toil. This comes closer to home because not all of us have the power that we've seen in the previous examples, but all of us have the ability to work. And trying to manage time can just make you a workaholic. Verse 4, chapter 4, verse 4. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work came from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. Trying to get ahead. Why do we need to get ahead? Why do, why do I need to see what you're doing and say, oh, I want that, and I, I, in fact, i got to do better than that. Why does this rivalry stir us on? Because of time and because of death. Consider, if we took seriously the belief that the Bible teaches that we will live forever, what's the hurry to surpass your neighbor? What's the hurry? What's the urge? What's the, I gotta do this because they have it, or I want what they have? We only think that way because time tyrannizes us and says, you won't be here forever. It's the vanity, the brevity of life. That's what's haunting us with this anxiety. So we work and we work and we toil because we think that somehow that's going to change the reality of time. But it's not. If we truly live forever, if we have the right Christian perspective, we won't have to outdo one another because you will succeed in God's time. And in God's time, you have lots of it. Just so you know, you have eternity to keep growing. So... This anxiety of time, this trying to manage it, can lead us to work too hard, to toil. Verse 5, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. You're killing yourself with all this toil. Verse 6, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after wind. Or you might remember that could also be translated drinking in the wind. (laughs) It does nothing for you. So that's also toil. So we see injustice, we see oppression, we see toil. Managing time also produces loneliness. Verse 7. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. Havel outside of Eden. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. See, we can be so obsessed with trying to work and work and outdo time that we forget others, is what he's saying. So really, it, it spawns off from the, uh, the concept of toil, is that toil too much can lead to loneliness, to, to isolating yourselves from others because you are your projects. And the reason you don't like people is because people take time. <laughs> Do they ever? You guys know what I mean, especially when someone needs you or starts talking to you and you're like, this story's going on way too long. We are all aware of time, but when we love people, time just flies, isn't it? You're not aware of it. You let go of it. And so we see the, the positive side of this in verse 9. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. 
For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has no, not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord, so even more than two, three is not quickly broken. The more company, in a sense, the better, the stronger we are. We'll come back to that because there's a good reason for that passage right there. So then in verse 13 to the end of the chapter is his conclusion, our professor's conclusion about time. He tells us a little parable. But there, verse 13, behold, better, better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne. I believe we're talking about the youth. He goes from prison to the throne. Though in his own kingdom, he had been poor. So amazing turn of event story, right? Rags to riches. Verse 15. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. He thought he wanted this, right? He rose up, but then he found out there's nothing but toil. There's no end to this task. And then yet, those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after the wind. And so we try to beat time by climbing the ladder. This young man had injustice. He was oppressed because he was in prison. But then he toiled his way to the throne. He was alone, despite all the people he's leading, because he died alone and forgotten. You see, the whole story of what the preacher just told us, the professor, about trying to manage time, he encapsulates it all in that story, and then concludes by saying, surely this, chapter 3, verse 1 to this verse, surely all this is vanity and a striving after wind. Wow. So, have a great week. Watch the clock of your life because it's coming after you. Amen. No, there's hope. (laughs) And here's where I believe we have a Christian approach to time management. It's that we must learn to let time manage us. That is the wisdom the professor is offering. Letting time manage us. The world tells us that time is for manipulation. You make your plans. You do what you need to do when you do it. Don't let things stop you. Take charge. But God tells us that time is for our sanctification. Sometimes I want to be in this season of joy, but I'm in this season of mourning. Well, the world says, get over it. So go back to joy. Manage time. But God's saying, no, let time manage you. I need you to be in this season right now. Why? For your sanctification. Because John, well, that's a name in here. Maybe uh, Billy Bob. Because Billy Bob. I have a 50-year plan for you. Not a five-year plan. Not a five-minute plan. I see a bigger picture. In fact, God would actually say, I have a 50-million-year plan for you. And then some. That's why you're in this season. Not so that you can learn to self-master yourself or self-improve yourself and figure out how to manage everything so that you get the life you want. No. 
time is not for your manipulation. It's for your sanctification. And this season comes when it comes because I know how the seed must grow. It needs winter. It needs fall and spring and summer. And I went out of order, but you understand. You too need these seasons to grow because I have a 50-year plan for you. So here's how we can let time manage our sanctification. Stop resisting it. (laughs) But here's how, here's three very practical ways that we can do this. First, we must learn to trust time to God's sovereignty. I think we forget that. And we look at, we know like, oh, God's got the big picture in his hands, but we forget that the little seasons that I'm going through, that these are part of his sovereignty too. That the farmer knows when to throw the seed and when to gather the harvest because he knows the season. And so our father knows the seasons to throw us into and when to move us from one to the other. We must trust in God's sovereignty. And wisdom outside of Eden recognizes We recognize that we don't live in Eden, so we can't expect Edenic seasons all the time. The world wants feast and party all the time, and so they pursue it because they don't understand that they're outside Eden. The world is trying to create Eden on this earth and in their lives. But the preacher's telling us, you are not in Eden. We have been banished from Eden. We will get there, but we're outside of that right now. So in the meantime, you have these seasons and you have these seasons. Wisdom recognizes that outside of Eden, there is a wide span of seasons. And I'm going to live in all of them. That's the wisdom because we trust the sovereignty of God over our lives. That he is doing In us, what must be done to get us to be those sons and daughters eating with him in the future kingdom, the future renewed Eden. Number two, so that's trust time to God's sovereignty. Second, share time with others. Share time with others. Remember verse nine, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. Share time with others. Don't be the loner. We must share time with others because others will be there to help us when we are going through the seasons we don't want to go through. Woe to the one who's alone in that season. But we tend to be alone because we don't want to share time with others because we'd rather hoard the time and we'd rather control the time. I can't really say it better than Zach Eswine. He's one of the great, it's one of the great books I'm reading on Ecclesiastes. And he, he just says it like this. Because we are committed to arrange life the way we want it and to avoid what we do not prefer, many of us remain flexible and unskilled in the wisdom of seasons. The result is that we try to force others to act or the world to exist within the confines of the handful of seasons we are most comfortable with. And so if you can't weep, if you can't tear down, if you can't fight, if you can't whatever the seasons are calling for, then you're just going to be pushing people out of your life because people invite us to seasons we don't want to be in. Or other people are in seasons we don't want to engage in. Or if we're just going to keep manipulating. It's always happy. It's always happy. You know people who try too hard and they're hard to be around. We must learn to share our time with others for in the sharing of time with others, we will find the help to make it through the seasons we don't want to be in. That's how God designed the church. And that's why we are not alone in church. And you who are online, I understand. I know you want to be here. Third, so trust time to God's sovereignty. 
share time with others. And then third, orient time to the seasons of the church calendar. What? (laughs) This is kind of an out there concept for some people because um, a lot of Christians in the West have completely forgotten that we have a Christian calendar. Now, it has nothing to do with being saved and legalism and stuff like that, but it has lots to do with teaching us the right relationship with this fraught anxiety we have with time. The Christian calendar. Um, let me... Let me introduce you like this. We all live by calendars. Calendars orient our lives to time. Most of us live by the civil calendar. Starts January 1st with New Year's, goes through February, March, April, May, goes all the way to the end of December, right? Sprinkled in there, we have federal holidays and we have commercial holidays and stuff. That's the one that we mostly live by. But there's also, to look more detailed, the commercial calendar, Think about the commercial calendar. We live in this rhythm too. There's Valentine's Day. And so what do we all do? Shame on us when we don't buy a card for someone we love. Like that's become an expectation, right? Our culture is actually strapped to this orientation of time. Then it comes around like St. Patrick's Day and you're supposed to wear green or you get pinched. Or there comes around uh, Mother's Day in May. Uh, there comes around the graduations and the, the things you got to attend, the gifts you got to send to those grads. Or there's Father's Day, which gets forgotten because of graduation. Um, there's all these things like the commercial calendar tells us what to buy and who to buy it for. And we all live by it. It's become expected. So living by a calendar is absolutely nothing new. As a baseball fan, I live by a calendar. March is the best of months because not only is winter ending, but spring training begins, which means the season's around the corner. April and opening day is the best of days because everyone's team is undefeated on opening day. And it's one of the only times you get to revel in that. And then there's the all-star game in July and the trading deadline last week. And this is the moment when you find out who has a chance to make it and whose season is basically over for the dog days of August. And then in September, the, the amateurs get to be called up because the rosters get bigger and you get to see some of your future and your youth. And then October, you find out these teams remain. And then at the end of October, there's only two and there's a World Series. And at the end of the World Series... There's all the rumors, who's being traded, who's signing with who, blah, 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 all the way till March. That's the rhythm, right? That's the calendar of a baseball fan. Football has its own. Hockey, soccer, all of it has its own. We all orient ourselves around calendars. My question, therefore, is that if calendars shape our experience of time, why would we not shape our experience of time to the story of the gospel? In other words, tonight is the 8th of August. That's nice. That's based upon the civil calendar, which was basically compiled based upon Roman festivals. August is for Augustus, Caesar Augustus. It's the season of the feast of Augustus. That's August. So we live by, it's the 8th of August. That, okay, cool. Um, But in the Christian worldview, you know where we are right now? (laughs) Crickets, that's my point. This is the 11th Sunday after Pentecost. The 11th Sunday after Pentecost, why do we number it? Because Pentecost is so important to who we are. It's like when you have a king who takes the throne. You know that it's the third year of his reign. We are in the 11th week of the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's where we are. And then we know that Christmas has come because of Advent and so forth. Okay, so um, 
this is what this is what um, Shane Claiborne said about the church calendar. He said, "It does not help us remember our agendas. The church calendar has nothing to do with my like management of time." It does not help me remember my agendas, my meetings, my schedules, my appointments. Not at all. But rather aims at nothing less than changing the way that we experience time and perceive reality. The church calendar is about the movement of history toward a glorious goal. God's kingdom. So, um, you guys might know that this year we've been talking, like when it was Lent, it was very clear, this is Lent. And I'm encouraging you guys to fast and pray a little extra. And we, we did a teaching on um, being cruciformed. We did uh, six weeks of teachings on cruciformed, a cross-shaped life, because um, we're gently reminding ourselves that we as Christians, we're orienting ourselves around the story of Christ, not around the stories of our generals and our and our presidents, and when we love our presidents, we love our war heroes, it's not that we shouldn't. That's not what I'm saying. But we, as citizens of heaven, have another calendar that we orient our lives around. Yeah, we're Americans, but we're also citizens of heaven. Um, so, okay. Here's, I want to show you guys how this works. How this helps us to let time manage us for our sanctification by showing you the three levels of the church calendar. It's very simple. There's a daily level, there's a weekly level, and there's a yearly level. Daily level. The church is forever and ever. We've lost this as life has gotten busy, but I've restored it in my life, Brittany, and I have tried to restore this in our lives pretty faithfully. Um, the, the, the ancient tradition of evening and morning prayer. That the church is given a rhythm every day. We start the day actually at sundown with evening prayer. And there are some great prayers that go with that. Um, oh, gladsome light, pure brightness of the ever-living Father in heaven, Jesus Christ, holy and blessed. It's just, it's just this, like closing the day and opening the next, the new day to come. Because evening prayer is in the dark. And the dark reminds us the current age we live in. But it's also looking forward to tomorrow is a new day. Tomorrow there's freshness. We live in a fallen world, but tomorrow is the day when resurrection comes. And so we start, like in Genesis 1, evening, morning was the first day. We begin in evening, realizing that as we close the day in prayer, we're also opening into a new day. And this is giving time orientation for us. At the end, we recognize, okay, everything I did today had a purpose, and it's Christ. And I'm opening into a new day that this is not all there is, but there's hope and there's a future that I'm looking forward to. And then we arise and we praise God that, look, you sustained us through the darkness and evil of night. And here we are to praise you and to give this morning to you. Morning prayers about orienting the work of our day and the time of our day to his lordship. And so as we go through these rhythms every day, evening, morning, evening, morning, evening, morning, we're orienting our concept of time around Christ and realizing that it all has purpose. And then there's the weekly calendar. The weekly calendar is very simple. Sunday. Now, why Sunday? Why not the Sabbath? Well, God in the Garden of Eden gave man Sabbath because this was what he worked on. Two, the Sabbath wasn't this footnote at the end of the week to say, rest so that you can work again. That's a bad way to look at the Sabbath. The Sabbath was the purpose of the first six days. The first six days were about um, working, and then on the Sabbath you celebrated the life God had given you. It was the climax 
all of these six days had meaning because of the Sabbath. But the very good creation and that life that the Sabbath was meant to celebrate has fallen apart. We live in a fallen world, and the world is no longer good, but it's sinful, and it's in rebellion, and it's killed its maker in Christ on the cross. The world can never be the same because of that. So the Sabbath forever anticipated that it needed another day of climax to bring meaning to everything. The Sabbath itself, the seventh day, was looking for an eighth day. It's like the musical scale got broken, and musicians will know that if you end on the seventh note of the scale, Do, re, mi, fa, so, la, ti, da. You needed that eighth one, right? You need that octave. You need that eighth scale to bring it to completion. And the Sabbath was yearning. Every seventh day was saying, but there's an eighth day coming. And when Christ bust out of the stone, he bust through the stone out of the tomb, eighth day is here. The resurrection of Christ was not just the beginning of a new week. It was the completion and climax of the old week. The eighth day is both an end and it's a beginning of a new week. We, as Christians, therefore, have taken Sunday as that eighth day. We proclaim the end of one age and the beginning and the dawn of a new age. And so we gather together every Sunday to proclaim this reality that this is a new time and Christ has redeemed time. But more importantly, why can't I do church when I want and on the day I want? Because we're not mystics who are detached from time. We live in time. And God has called us to his time. We orient our week to him. We orient our Sunday to him. Well, I would rather do it Monday nights. That's nice, but are you the master of your time? Or is Christ the master of our time? This is why I believe that the actual physical gathering of Christians in church is important. Not because a sermon is so important. I know you can get that anywhere from better people. It's important because it's our orientation to time on a weekly basis. There's so much more you could say about that. There's other days like Wednesdays and Fridays when things were practiced of old, but those things are dropped because we like to manage our own time. The third level. So we got daily, weekly, and yearly. And we'll close here. The yearly level of the Christian calendar. That's interesting because um, like Ecclesiastes 3, it talks about a season for this and a season for that. The Christian calendar basically says this. There's a season for fasting and a season for feasting. We don't get to just say, I want to live this way forever. The church calendar is wise in saying there's a season for everything, and this is for the sanctification of our souls. So we begin the Christian New Year not on New Year's Eve. We actually begin it on Advent. We begin, Advent means coming, and it's this year it's the 28th of November. It's always four weeks before Christmas. We begin the Christian year waiting for God's coming. And we we build up to Christmas, and Christmas we celebrate. He has come, he will come again. We start our year not with New Year's resolutions. We start our year waiting on the God who holds time to answer our prayers in his time. What a position for the church. 
And then we go through Christmas. We go through Epiphany, who God showed himself to us in time. We go through Lent, a time of fasting and prayer in which we get to say, okay, this is a season for reflecting on my sin. This is a season for, for, for trying to draw near to the cross of Christ so that I can be humbled and see the ways he needs to fix me. But then we get to feast with Easter. And then we get to continue to feast for 50 days until Pentecost. And then Pentecost is like our 4th of July. This is our inception. We were not conceived when we rebelled from England. Yes, as Americans, we were. And please celebrate the 4th of July. That's important. But as Christians, we were conceived when the Holy Spirit entered us. That is our beginning. That's our inception. And so while as Americans, we do fireworks to celebrate our American beginning, as Christians, we have the fire of the Holy Spirit and the work of the Spirit in and through us as our heavenly citizenship conception. And so we count off the weeks. Half of the Christian year is actually called Pentecost. That's why we're in the 11th week of Pentecost. Because it's the reminder of we exist not because of a constitution, as citizens of heaven, I mean. We don't exist because of a constitution. We exist because of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes us who we are. So, brothers and sisters... These are ways that Christians for 2,000 years have oriented themselves to time to let time manage them for their sanctification, understanding that we can trust God by following him. We can trust time to sovereignty. We can share time with others as we pray and as we assemble and as we follow the calendar and fast together, pray together, and feast together. These things are meant to bring us together, to allow God's time to manage our sanctification So, I would encourage you to establish a daily rhythm of prayer and Bible reading. And if you can do evening and morning, all the better. But try to do something daily. Um, I encourage you to make Sundays a priority. And I encourage you to be aware of the seasons of the church. I will always be doing that for you anyways. But to, when it's time to observe certain things, like, why not? What do you have to lose? This is meant to draw us in love and devotion to Christ the same way that we willingly say, oh, it's a season of Halloween. Well, no, you guys don't, of course. Um, <laughs> but kids love it, right? Kids love the whole dress-up thing. So, like, whatever. Throw in your thing. It's Christmas. We've got to buy things. Yeah, it's Christmas. God already gave us everything. Like, which perspective are we going to live by? Um, Those are some ways we can do it. So, to God belongs the kingdom and the power and the glory, now and ever and to ages of ages worship him.